Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. Today, we're going to talk to Barry Blinn, who's Vice President of Audience and Content Insights at ESPN. Now, Barry is one of my favorite people in the industry. I love Barry, and you will too at the end of this interview. He's such a fun guy to be with. Barry, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Dwayne, thank you very much. I'm excited to talk to you under the banner of Legends of Media Research. I'm not sure I'm a legend, but since I've worked for, for the legend and worked alongside two of the legends thus far, I'm at least a legend by association, so thank you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. All legends think they're not legends, Barry. You are a legend, and, and by the end of the episode today, everybody will understand why. So, Barry, let's get right into it. How did you get started in this industry? Like most people who've been on the podcast so far, I didn't major in research or statistics and didn't have any plans deciding I wanted to be in a career in research. I started in political science at the University of Michigan. When I graduated, I went to work for a firm called Peter Hart Research. Mr. Hart was one of the original pioneers of political polling and surveys and focus groups. One of the first people to be an advisor to presidents and senators and congressmen that they'd run for office. They'd use those tools to come back and say, Dwayne, you're running for office in Austin, Texas. Here's what your voters think about you. It was a great strategy job. And then Mr. Hart expanded it to include corporate research for clients like MTV and Microsoft and the Gates Foundation. And what was great about that job and very humbling about that job is I showed up right out of college, excited to do so many different things that were exciting and new. And he said, you'll start in the mailroom and you will learn how to <laughs> do surveys and focus groups and process data and run cross tabs, all the things that I didn't think were glamorous. I learned how to do, but it taught me sort of the fundamentals of survey and focus group research, which was invaluable and is a steady thread throughout the other three chapters of my career. And the intangible thing that I learned from Mr. Hart was he was a four floor office. Peter was at the top and you'd get the results of the survey at the time. And it wasn't like you would email them. You'd run them up the stairs. And every time I got to the top of the stairs, he said, what did we learn? And I learned right. within four flights, I had to read the results and have something smart to say. And that's what we call the elevator. You know, anybody else calls the elevator speech, which is what would I tell someone in my company if I ran into them right now? 10 minutes after I got to the research. So it was a great building block experience. And you um, went from Peter Hart to working at MTV Networks, working with Comedy Central. Well, I suppose there's a joke there about going straight from politics into comedy and which one is really which. <laughs> but I went to work at Comedy Central. At the time, Comedy Central was a brand that I didn't even get on television in Washington, D.C., where I was living. And I came to interview for them and they said, we're going to have a really big show and this could change everything. And I said, sure, sure. Everybody says that. And I'm sure every network has the next big hit just around the corner. And it was South Park. And eight days wow. after I got there, South Park aired and, and South Park propelled a brand and a network in, in a very rare way in media from 40 million to 80 million homes and set off this tremendous run of creativity that included Jon Stewart, Dave Chappelle, and any number of great trailblazing comedies. And the reason I was hired there is rather than starting in entertainment, 
I worked my way across using survey and focus group skills. They needed somebody who could do surveys and focus groups. And I learned media research. I learned how to do ratings and how to process TV ratings and how to think about that's the practical skill that I learned there. I think the intangible skill that I learned, because that's the way I like to think about these jobs is, I learned that it's not the research that gives the answer, it's the proper reading of the research. So what does that mean? We tested hundreds of shows at Comedy Central after South Park. Most of the shows on a dial don't test well. They don't test well because people don't want to, in surveys, and they don't want to admit that they think something that's real is funny on an instrument if it has particular overtones or is offensive to a certain group. And so you had a part of the testing was listening to see if people laughed. We would turn out the lights in the back room and see how much laughter there was as we looked through the results. And it was just a good reminder of it's not necessarily, oh, the show earned this score or this many people gave it the top box. There's a lot of intangibles that go, especially into entertainment research. So it was a good reminder to me to learn how to read it, not just rely upon it as a singular figure. And I got a chance to work at that time for Betsy Frank who was uh, the senior leader there, and then Colleen Fahey Rush, who to this day is the senior leader there. So it was a great experience to have access to people there. And from there, I took the next step. I went to work for a boutique branding agency called Sterling Brands. Sterling Brands was a boutique media research agency that did brand positioning for all the various networks at that time, especially in the MTV Networks family. And it was a great place to learn about branding and positioning and understanding what makes one brand different from one another. And brand, uh, things that are commonplace now, but at the time, media brands were just sort of figuring out. Got to work on a long list of clients, which after years in politics and years in comedy, it was great to have access to a wide range of clients. I'd say the tangible thing that I learned there, the practical thing I learned there, and we'll talk more about it later, is storytelling, presenting, designing presentations, practicing presentations in a way that truly resonates and lands with the audience. And I think the intangible there is, this, and this comes toward the work that, that we did together later, was the intangible for me was to flip things on their side and to put creativity into research and to take risks. Mm. So I'll give you an example. So prior to the work at, Ster I work at Sterling, whenever we did focus groups, it would be two hours with people who liked a particular subject and two hours with people who didn't like the same subject. And then we'd sit there after the four hours and try and understand it. What we created at Sterling was something called a conflict group, which is something we simply made from scratch, which is we're going to take a focus group and half the group are going to be people we deliberately recruit who like the product and half who dislike it. And I'll never forget sitting in hotels and doing what we call these conflict groups and debate sessions, hosted debates with fans of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and fans of Haagen-Dazs ice cream and debating different flavors. And the clients <laughs> loved it. It literally was a food fight. <laughs> um, but the clients loved it. It was a great chance to see the different things that push each other's buttons and those particular groups. Why do they like one thing better than the other? What, what works? And it, it was also a sort of pivot point for us to say a part of market research is marketing the research. And that's offensive maybe to some of the longest standing research class. But in a world where entertainment is 15 seconds or less, you have to find a way to get your internal clients rallied and engaged around research, get them interested in it. And this was a way to say to the clients, we're not doing traditional work. We're doing something innovative here. We want you to be a part of it. Oh no, we're not doing focus. We're doing conflict groups. 
And people really seem to move to the front of their chairs when you suggest new innovative ideas like that. So simply by its design, we were marketing who we were to our internal clients. That was a really great creative chapter. And then after 10 years of interviewing with Artie Bulgren, literally once a year, we would have lunch. And I would say to him, how about having somebody at ESPN who does brand research? Artie would say, no, you know, we're doing just fine. We're selling lots of ads to Budweiser. Everybody's watching ESPN. You know, what would you like for lunch? We'd have lunch once a year. After 10 years, he hired me at ESPN to start the first brand research department. And that's, that's, a, that's a long interview, Barry, a long interview. <laughs> long interview. It's a lot of lunches. And he ate at the same place every time. But it was a, it was, it was a real t- crowning achievement and persistence. And he didn't know what was in for him. And to his credit, thankfully, he let that happen. And you've been at ESPN since 2008. Wow. You must have seen a lot of change in those years. <laughs> the fascinating thing about ESPN and the length of tenure is the amount of change that's taken place within it. So in 2008, 2010, cable was at its apogee. The most distribution, the highest point, the greatest revenues. And as we know recently, cable's distribution in some ways has become challenged and we've had the, the rise of streaming. But I've had different chapters within that. I came to start a brand research department. At the time, ESPN didn't have brand research. It didn't particularly have a sense of what the audience liked and didn't like, what the strengths of the brand are, what the weaknesses of the brand were, what it needed to work on. And it was a great time because the people in power at ESPN, this is also part of achieving a research is hitting the right moment with an organization. They were hungry for challenging news. They'd had 30 years of success. They knew the competition was intensifying, and that allowed us to create research where it was welcomed and expected to present challenging news. And it goes to one of those ideas that we'll talk about later about the ability to present challenging news and learning how to do that. That was a a key moment. I was blessed at the same time to be working for Artie and the team of the highest level of research measurement of content. So the thing I learned there are the tangible skills of cross-platform measurement and how to combine all the different measures of research to find an answer. It's not just what the survey research says. It's not just what the primary research says. It's the combination of what people said they did and how they feel and what they what they actually wound up doing, what the actual behavior was. That was the that was the that was sort of the key tangible finding. From there, after doing that for five years, I moved into measurement research and assumed o- oversight of the measurement of how ESPN content, all of ESPN content. Is performing on television, digitally, and in streaming. And putting those in this new horizon, putting those things together and being able to explain to our leaders how ESPN's content is performing. Let's now dig deeper. So what really makes you a legend in my book, Barry, what I think you're best at in the industry is this art of storytelling. It's the ability to take these findings and weave them all together in a in a narrative in a a journey in an emotional journey as well not a dry journey but but some some kind of journey that you're on that really you know has ups and downs and takes you on a little bit of a ride i remember one of the decks you presented you had all these findings and it was all woven together in the in the structure of, of, of the story of Alice in Wonderland, for example, and the decks were so beautiful, you know, gorgeous decks telling the story. I mean, it was, it's always a joy to listen to you tell the story of the research. So how do you do it, Barry? How is it that you have perfected this craft of, of storytelling around these insights? 
Well, thank you, Dwayne. That's really flattering. And if the estate of Alice in Wonderland comes after us, I know who to blame. Um, <laughs> there are technical aspects to presentation creation, and there are the thematics or the, the presentation, actual presentation part of it. And so I, I guess if I can if I can divide it into those two areas, we start a lot with an incredible amount of thought to what did we learn and how do we want to tell the story of what we learned and who are we telling it to? Dwayne, when we talk about designing and executing a great presentation, one of the first things that we have to teach people is to unteach some of the things that they feel their impulses to do that researchers have always done. For example, researchers present way too much data, way too much background in way too complex a fashion. And sadly, it's one of the things that gets the research ignored. As a son of two teachers, one of the things that I feel like I've learned and applied over time is research shouldn't show everything that they know. It's about what you can teach people. You teach them a finding, and then you want them to remember and use that finding in their own work. It's, it's a slight change of lens. All too often you see researchers presenting to researchers. You really have to get it as researchers presenting to the non-researcher. The second thing that I would say is the playwright Aaron Sorkin believes that every story essentially is about intention and obstacle. Dwayne wants to fly from Australia to New York. He gets stuck here. This happens. The, the trip goes sideways, and then Dwayne gets to New York. Every character and story is some variation on that. Couple wants to be together, couple can't be together, couple winds up together. In the same way, research is about the objective, the obstacles, and then the solution, which is, what's our question here? Is this piece of content performing? What are the challenges? And what are the things that we don't understand? What does the data say? How we try to think about it? And then what's the payoff? What do we actually learn about this and how do we make it better? So it's kind of a version of intention and obstacle every time, which is, Research question, confounding ideas, and strategic resolution of what we think we should do. And finally, this also goes against the long-term sort of heritage of research, which is opinion isn't a nice to have, it's an essential. As long as you clearly demarcate, this is what the research says. And as a result, and draw a dark line in between them if you have to, this is our opinion, our expert opinion about what you should do in this point. Doesn't mean you have to do it. Because researchers have this history of sticking their finger in the chest of people and going, the data says this, you must do this. No, we'd like to be, we have an opinion and we have an input into your problem. We want to help you get to right. This is what we think you should do. And I think that slight pivot from being insistent to being an asset to solving is also really important. So those three things, just from the start of how researchers think about presentations are really important. The design of the presentation is terribly important. We try to tailor it to the crowd that we're presenting to everything from, uh, in, in the case of ESPN, what sports are they involved in? What generation are they? What type of, of teams and things are they involved in? So it's not just about pretty pictures. It's that in some way, the entire deck reflects the flow of narrative. I'll give you an example. We did a presentation to talent on 20 pieces of advice for how you should be on air and things you should do and didn't do. We did the whole thing as a playlist. So each of the lessons that we had for talent was the name of a song. By the way, each of those songs were reflective of the generation and diversity of people in the room, kind of a wink. And all of the graphics represented a playlist. All the things they saw on screen were exactly like they might make a playlist for a friend. It was all designed to suit them, their, their, their creativity and interest in music and their generation in terms of their age and interest. So we want to make sure to pull that idea all the way through the day all the way through the payoff. We take real practice in design of making sure that we are both, that we tip a cap and wink at the people we're presenting to periodically. 
The commissioner of the NBA happens to have gone to Duke. All the jerseys in our presentations are former Duke players. A little bit of a wink there. A little bit of a way of saying, <laughs> we got to know you along the way. And at different times, we've done things creatively to sort of wink at the audience and say, like, we get you and you get us. That's really important. So that we have a graphic artist who works with us on this. It's not the mistake people make of, and, and no offense, is your decks are pretty. It's intentional design. It's that not just we say to someone, make it look nice. It's that we actually put the post-its in that say we'd like 1970s themed typewriter here because it's all intentional. It's all part of the story. Dwayne, the third aspect of a really compelling story is the manner in which it's presented. And we take great care in teaching all the people on the team to present in their own style, but in a way that is going to resonate with an audience. Let me give you just a handful of examples of the things that we teach. We teach excessive practice. Every presentation is presented at least a dozen times to the furniture in your living room. You should practice it over and over again. You should practice the introduction. You should practice the clever joke on page three. You should practice what we call transitions. What is a transition? From page two to page three, too often in a research presentation, someone will say, let's go to page three now. Okay, what you're looking at is, no, no, no. Page two to three transition might be something like, these are the favorite teams in the National League, but the question you're asking, and then the slide changes is, who are the favorite teams in the American League? All these transitions are designed to, they're all done in advance and they're all to make sure to take, keep the lift in the presentation and have the presenter be able to continue. The other thing that we teach is the weatherman, which is you should never actually turn around and look at your slides. Much like the weatherman person on television, you should have your whole deck memorized and you should be able to wave your hand in a way that indicates where you want people to pay attention without ever actually turning around. So that practice element, the transitions element, the weatherman, all those different things are designed to really make it a cohesive experience. Because you have to remember, the one thing you must do is put people at ease. If you're nervous and anxious, they'll be nervous and anxious. They want to be relaxed. They want to go on the ride. You have to set up an environment where you're saying, I'm comfortable and I'm willing to take you on that ride. Let's look at the findings together. The other key ingredient in the presentation and the real essential one is enthusiasm. You have an audience that's engaged. You undoubtedly have an interesting topic. You have interesting research. And we already know that you have solutions and opinions. Communicating that and that enthusiasm is critical because we believe that presentations are really one in the first two or three slides. Are you presenting effectively? Are you excited to be there? And are you putting people at ease? The other thing I would say, which is just a, a trick of experience, is never be mean to the slide operator. I have been to countless presentations where if something goes sideways in the presentation and doesn't show up, the person on stage gets really angry and says, can we see page two and page three, please? This is a bad idea because that other person is in control of your life. So I recommend instead, uh, this is the Barry Glenn <laughs> specialist. If you drive upstate and you're driving down a hill, they have an off-ramp where trucks can go if their brakes fail. Whenever you give a presentation, you should have an off-ramp. The off-ramp is a story joker experience that you will tell when you have to kill time. And you should always have one ready. Uh, if something goes wrong in a presentation, if the, if, if the crowd is disrupted in any way, and you shouldn't be mad. And always bring munchkins and donuts for those slide operators. It's a much better plan than getting angry at them. <laughs> wow, Barry, that was a lot of great advice. Um, I, I want to explore a little bit more this idea of of the story because again it's it's one of the things that 
is so unique about your your decks, about your presentations that I've seen, you know, your ability to take these insights and weave them together into a journey. That's just not something that you see, you know, all that often in the industry. H how do you do that? How do you look at, you know, you've got these insights, how do you figure out how to weave them together in that that kind of narrative? Dwayne, the actual design of the presentation next to the execution is my favorite part. The way we like to do it and prefer to do it is much like Disney will do with any of its other properties. We storyboard it. We start with what are our constraints? In their case, it's a two-hour movie or an eight-episode series. It's our case it's we have a certain amount of time to tell a research narrative. Okay, so let's present it. it's a 20-minute meeting. We have 15 slides. We put up 15 pages of blank white paper on the wall and say, oh, this is our starting point. This is our foundation. If we're building a building, this is the piece of real estate we have to work with. Great. That's our constraints. The second thing we decide is, what are the research insights? What are the ingredients? What are the pieces of information we need to get into this space? And of course, the third part is, is how do we want to do so in a creative and compelling way within with that data, within those constraints? And the final part, once we begin to do all of that and it comes together is, um, and I love the term, I think it was, um, Pixar has this, it's called shredding, which is you show the work and everybody criticizes it all at once. And, and you go through the process of thoughtful reduction. You go through the process of what we call torturing the logic, which is looking at your ideas and arguing the other side, looking at the design and saying, this doesn't work. And that process is probably that last 10 or so yards of the football field is the most challenging, but ultimately the most impactful. You're doing this as a as a group. This whole process that you're describing is like your team is sitting down and you're brainstorming together, working your way through what what the narrative will ultimately, you know, evolve and emerge as. Is that right? That's right. Especially because so much of the research we do is not dependent on one tool. We don't believe in presenting just the results of one tool. It can be someone who's in charge of the survey research. Somebody was in charge of the focus group research. Somebody was in charge of the lab research. Somebody was in charge of the measurement data. Let's do this together. Let's gather around, put our heads together and stare at blank pages and look at our own findings and say, what a story we want to tell. How do we want to tell it? What are the constraints we face? And it's a great process to do together as a team. So inspiring, Barry. I, I always love your presentations. Honestly, you're the, you're the best in the industry at, at, at putting these kind of stories together. So, Barry, oftentimes, though, the news isn't good news. This is also one of the things I've always really admired about you. You really have a gift for being the bearer of bad news, warts and all. <laughs> how, how do you do that? How do you, how do you deliver bad news? In my first job, I worked on an extensive automotive project where we tested a whole new line of cars for a major car dealer. And in order to present results, we traveled to Detroit and we went to the luxurious showroom with all of the heads of the car company. And we stood up in front of them, in front of the gleaming line of cars, and I watched my boss, Peter, tell them their strategy was flawed and nobody liked the cars. And I said, how did he just do that? They're clapping. And he walked wow. in and he gave bad news. <laughs> I want to learn how he did that. And, and along the way, we've, you know, there's a couple of sort of tips that we've acquired about giving challenging news. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. My first presentation at ESPN, producer of Monday Night Football came and said, we want you to do research about our anchors. We think people don't like our announcers and we want to know more. So I was excited. What a major assignment. This is a, a big, you know, 
big shining project on a very important property for ESPN, and I'd love to help. So we travel around, we do focus groups, we do surveys, we really start to get a beat on what's wrong. And the producer says something I'll never forget. Why don't you come present this to the talent? I love what you found. This is really helpful. And I thought this is a tremendous honor. What I realized later, and many researchers will realize this, is sometimes you're invited to say something that the other person can't say, and they want you to say it for them. And in this case, <laughs> I, was, I was the sacrificial lamb that was going to tell people what the producer really wanted to tell them. I didn't realize that until later. So how does giving bad news play into this? We have a beautifully designed deck. It's got great cultural references. It's nice. It's it, We've practiced it. It's all ready to go, except I know that at the bottom of the jar is bad news for the people we're going to be delivering to. So you have to prepare accordingly for the payoff of the challenging news. The critical moment in the presentation, we came to a slide, and I'll use your name because it's easier. I looked at the talent and I said, Dwayne, people really like you on the other shows that you're on on ESPN. But Dwayne, on this show, nobody likes you. They don't think you're comfortable. And beads of sweat start to come down my face. The room starts to move in slow motion. And the, this particular person looks at me and he goes, you're right. I'm not comfortable. And he says, in just a quick second, he goes, and now would you leave the room, please? So I, wa <laughs> I walked out of the room like it's a regular occurrence. Every presentation, they ask you to leave the room. I was out there for 10 minutes. I was out there for 20 minutes. I was out there for a half hour. I called my wife and I said, I think I've just been thrown out of the presentation where I just gave bad news in my first ESPN presentation. How am I going to call my boss and tell him this happened? The particular announcer comes out and go, pats me on the back and he goes, don't worry. They're not going to fire you. They're going to fire me. He went to the men's room and they <laughs> called me back. In. They called me back in after an hour and they said, we just want to thank you. This was very helpful. And the lesson learned there, and it's an exaggerated version of the lesson, and he called me later, was, I didn't mean to ask you to leave, but we needed to have an honest conversation, and we needed to hammer out the solution together. The lesson it taught me there is that research isn't necessarily always the solution. It has to be a catalyst to the solution. If they figured out how to solve their problems, and in my five slides, I set them up to solve it, that's enough satisfaction. I don't even have to be in the room for that to happen. And... A critical ingredient in that telling of bad news, besides the candor and the honesty of it, is I really believe that meetings aren't one in the meeting. Meetings are one before the meeting. And what I mean by that is I had spent a lot of time, we as a team, my colleague Edwin, a lot of time with the producer, a lot of time with the director, a certain amount of time with the talent. We had gone to Monday night football games and sat in the truck. We had dedicated time to them and how they work. So when we finally showed up and said, listen, here's some challenging news, they looked at us and goes, at least you took the time to learn our product. You came to visit us. You invested in us before the meeting. We will give you more credibility. The worst presentations are when people come in and drop bad news on people who've never seen them before, never met them, and have no idea who they are. And that's been a tried and true thing throughout our tenure at ESPN is we've earned the credibility of the clients where we can deliver challenging news, and they still want us to come back the next day because they know it in our heart of hearts is we just want them to be better. It's not about ego. It's not about anything like that. And that, that sort of sitting beside the client rather than across from them is, try, is, is really sort of a hallmark of work that we do in order to convey that. The other thing that we do to really sort of build the runway to challenging news is we learn the product. So, Dwayne, you may have a show at 2 in the morning on ESPN that five people watch. But if I'm doing a project about yours, I will watch your show. I might have to tape it, but I'll watch it. So when the time comes up, I know the product really well. 
It's another thing that sets you up for challenging news because I'm informed. I know your product. So those things, the delivery of it, the sensitivity of delivery, the meeting before the meeting, and the knowledge of the product, at least set you up to be a more credible deliverer of the challenging news. One of the things that Artie was also talking about in the interview he did was that when you deliver bad news, you have to have ideas about what can be done about the problem. You know, don't just go in there with a problem, go in there with potential solutions. That's right. And just as is true with Artie as my manager, the same thing is true with presenting this type of research. People respond best to problem and multiple choice. This is the problem. Here are the three choices. Here's our suggestions about what you should do and then make people a partner in solving them. So if I had a problem in the research department and I go to Artie, I give him a problem and I give him three choices. If we detect something in a product that needs fixing, here's what's wrong. Here's three potential fixes. Now, Barry, you and I have collaborated a lot together over the years. I think we've probably collaborated on close to 100 studies together across those, those years. What has the experience in the lab been like for you? How, how is it that that developed new muscles, if you will, in terms of your analytical skills? When they talk about products and consumer products and marketing textbooks, they talk about a situation where there was a jolt in the S-curve, where something happened that was a catalyst and then the product took off. Working with the lab has jolted my S-curve in terms of how I think about how research can be done. I have a tremendously, I think, solid foundation in traditional research, but the introduction of what I learned in the lab has really felt that I've been able a chance to take to swim in the deep end of the future in terms of content and content testing and understand consumers. I particularly remember a test you and I did of a, uh, and the team on a show that we had with a host named Keith Olbermann. And oh, it was yes. a late night sp <laughs> sports highlight show. And we had all of the background. We had all the Nielsen information. We were doing dial tests, so we had some dial information, and we had some focus group results. But there were certain things about that program we didn't quite understand how they worked. And we didn't get a chance to see the principles of how they worked. And you taught me a principle. He did a very powerful story about his father's relationship and how his father taught him about race through baseball, about certain how Black players and how they were assimilated into baseball. And he told it in a really touching way. And wouldn't you know, he told the story, and then the levels of the audience appeal went down. And we said, that doesn't make any sense. And you reminded us that when people go through an emotional state, whether they're scared in a horror movie or they go through a pinnacle of an emotional story, they actually have to reset emotionally before they can rise again. And we learn things like that. The Oberman story, I think itself is a good story. And then I think, you know, another great example of lab work that we've done together is simply on SportsCenter and how people look at SportsCenter. And I don't mean how they say they look at it, I mean how they look at it. So using the lab's eye gaze technology, we asked ourselves a question is, does our screen even look right? We have a ton of information. SportsCenter has always looked the same for 30 years. We said to ourselves, what can the lab teach us about that look and whether it actually looks the correct way? For example, we had information along the bottom of the screen called the bottom line. It always went from right to left. When we observe the way people process information, we actually learned we were doing it wrong. The best way for people to recall information along the bottom of the screen is for it to flip, not go from right to left. Secondly, we had all this information on the left side of the screen, like almost a rundown of what the topics are. This is now standard practice in news television, but then it was fairly new. 
what did we learn? The science taught us that we actually have the graphics on the wrong side, that people process the visual image first and then the verbiage. So the more appropriate place for the rundown was actually on the right side of the screen. These types of techniques gave us a whole new insight and helped us understand the fundamental difference between people, what they say and what they do and traditional metrics and more modern metrics. And they really were a game changer for us and, and changed the whole suite of testing of content at ESPN. You know, I remember some of the studies that you, 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 you led and pioneered, Barry. One of, one of my favorites was a study that was simply looking at, I mean, it came down to a single word. It's an NBA promo. Should it be tomorrow at 7.30 or should it say Thursday at 7.30? And it was so incredible to be able to use, you know, the biometric data, the eye tracking data, all this data to know that the word tomorrow is actually an exciting word. Thursday, when's Thursday? What is it? A lot harder to process, you know, so we were able to like get at that insight that no, tomorrow, one word, what the effect of one word is. I remember another one where there was a question about where the time and day should appear in a promo. Should it be Lakers versus Warriors tomorrow, 7.30? Or should it be tomorrow, 7.30, Lakers versus Warriors, right? And there was a debate internally about which was sometimes it would appear on the top, sometimes it would appear on the bottom. And what we discovered is that people's eyes first gravitate to the game, Lakers versus Warriors. That's what they look at first. And then their eyes go down from there. And I don't remember the exact stats, but they were staggering how incredibly more impactful it was when the time was below the game rather than above the game. I mean, so much work like that, which was just so powerful in understanding kind of that at an empirical level, exactly how, you know, the talent worked, how the content worked. Dwayne, we also tested the number of logos on screen, especially in today when people are tempted to put the name of every streaming service and every linear platform and every brand underneath anything that they're promoting. We learned there's a limit to that and it's too much on the cognitive load and there's actually a way. These are fundamental research and marketing questions that have been asked for decades that actually science now can give us a true answer to rather than the hypotheses. Fantastic. Lane, one of my favorite studies actually has nothing to do with video. It has to do with an audio, the audio medium and sports radio and sports listening. We wanted to test a program in the most ideal conditions possible about how people listen to a morning sports show on their way to work. So in the lab, you created a simulation of a car where people could act as if they were driving to work that actually had the streets of Austin, Texas on it. And we could try to get it as close as possible to the actual listening experience to see how they engage with the content. That's something we never would have done before. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All these studies um, learned so much across every study. Amazing. So Barry, what advice would you have for this new generation of researchers coming into the industry? First thing that I would say is research is a team sport. And we often joke in our department lately that it's not research, it's we search. Because <laughs> the, the complexity of the problems that we have to solve these days in research are so exponentially difficult that you really need everyone around the table to solve them. And that includes your partners, that includes the internal clients. It includes everyone to solve it. The days of or one person knowing the answer to everything are long over, which sort of leads to my second idea, which is that it's actually for researchers and research leaders, which is research departments usually, and I know because I work for some of the best ones, headed by the single person who knew the most about every topic. 
that's not the way things work anymore. There are so many different disciplines that in many ways, the research department should work like an orchestra. Everybody has to learn how to play an instrument as well as they can play it. And then we have to figure out how to play it together to get the answer to our problems. The third thing that I would say for, especially for young researchers is perfect your forehand, but don't run around your backhand. So what do I mean by that? First of all, you'll observe that every metaphor I practically do is sports because I've worked at a sports network too long. But perfecting your forehand means find what you're great at as a researcher. In my case, I was good at storytelling. Perfect that, take it as far as you can get it. Hit that shot as many times as you can hit that shot in front of as many people as you can. But what I've learned over time also was that I was running around my backhand. What does that mean? In tennis, a lot of people who aren't very good at hitting a backhand run around it and try to hit a forehand in the last second because they know their backhand's terrible. They run away from their weakness. And I have found, especially in recent years, that just as important to perfecting what I'm great at is to augment what I'm less good at. And I think the more well-rounded, obviously, you can be as both is, but don't over-favor what you're great at and don't completely undervalue what you're challenged at. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Well, Barry Blinn, thank you so much. You are a true legend. We love you, Barry Blinn. Thank you so much for joining us today on Legends of Media Research. Thank you very much, Dwayne. And I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Stick around if you'd like to learn a little bit more about media science. Otherwise, until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Dwayne Varon, CEO of Media Science, thanking you for joining us today on Legends of Media Research. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture -picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by media science. Media science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with media science. Learn more at mediascience.com.